let's go ahead and uh, get started. Lord, we ask you this morning for uh, spirit of truth. We ask you for truth be highly exalted this morning, Jesus, that your name would be exalted, that you would set our hearts on a sure foundation this morning, that you would strengthen us in our calling, that we would make sure our calling and election, Father. We just say our hearts tremble before you concerning that day, and we want to walk worthy of our calling in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, so I sent the email out to uh, some of you just saying, um, this is really, I would say, the first time I uh, have ever felt that uh, I have received the word of the Lord. Um, and so, those of you who know me, obviously that is not something I've ever done. Um, I... About a month and a half ago, I was in the prayer room and uh, on a Friday afternoon, and and uh, and the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and basically all uh, all the notes came in in about an hour and a half, and it was uh, it was an intense, strange little swirl on martyrdom, and because that day I had the afternoon where I thought, I just need to look forward on this Babylon class and trek through some of the uh, uh, future notes. And so this one, the Lord highlighted it, and it uh, it all just came. And so I didn't think uh, that's kind of been on the back burner for about a month and a half. And then... Um, uh, trying to think of the things that have happened. Um, I've had a strange history with, uh, with the, uh, just a strange little numerology thing with, with 1111. And so, uh, so, uh, so on Tuesday, every year the Lord gives me something in a strange way, uh, either on November 11th or February 2nd, oddly, and uh, and so Tuesday night I was kind of uh, gearing up for what was going to happen yesterday, and uh, I go to the director's meeting for FSM, and and uh, Wes is talking about what had happened in class on Monday and Tuesday. And he says, uh, he says, I really think strangely, I feel in my heart like this thing of the Holy Spirit is actually about martyrdom. You remember when he said that? And uh, I just sat there and looked at him, and then he kind of went on. And so I woke up uh, Wednesday morning, and there was no, yesterday morning, there was no dream. And uh, I went down to the JPR to uh, to finish the notes up some, and uh, I was in the JPR, and all of a sudden, as I was working through it, it was 
it wasn't one of those experiences where like the presence of the Lord descends, but it was like it was like the word of the Lord. And I don't know how else to describe it other than all I could understand was that all roads were leading to martyrdom. And then the burden coming out of that, that the church is uh, almost completely unprepared for that martyrdom, that there's no theology to back up that martyrdom, that there's no one proclaiming that it's coming as a central fact and then preparing God's people to embrace it wholeheartedly. And, uh, and so uh, that was all happening strangely at the same time as what, was, what started here at FSM yesterday on 11-11. And so, um, so that's why uh, I uh, emailed a number of you I, uh, my heart's a little fear and trembling in the situation, um, not just at the word, but my own fear of man issues. Um, and so what I want to say today, I, I want to, uh, I want to, uh, uh, like, uh, Ephesians 5. Um, for you were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord, live as children of the light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord, and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So, um, uh, I, this is about as contentious and confrontational as John Harrigan is going to get, uh, but I want to, uh, I'm not going to speak uh, as plainly as I could, but I want to uh, expose why the church is not embracing uh, martyrdom, and, uh, and, and I want to uh, say that firmly. So, So uh, the the just a little bit of review on the class for those of you who hadn't been here, the uh, the purpose of the class really does uh, point towards this uh, in a, in a large way. We talked about in the first three sessions just the nature of the theology of Babylon and uh, that it's. Uh, <coughs> That uh, sorry, bear with me. That you have the uh, reality of the Tower of Babylon that uh, sets the standard for interpretation of Babylon in Revelation uh, 17 and 18, which is generally uh, two of your most controversial uh, passages of interpretation, along with. Revelation 12 and 13, and so 
the nature of what Babylon is really is the kind of culmination of theological thought, uh, especially concerning eschatology. And so uh, what I've found over the years when researching and studying uh, the nature of Babylon, because that's what the class is designed to do, is give us a vision for it so that we can walk faithfully in the midst of it, that the, uh, the mission of the church can be clearly defined and, and we can walk through it. And so just what I found over the years that there's, uh, there's, almost, there's very little commentary on Babylon, and what commentary there is has no anchor or root in the Tower of Babylon nor the historical kingdom of uh, Babylon. It all gets, uh, quote, spiritualized or uh, uh, is uh, a metaphor for some other entity or reality. And so the point of the class is simply to establish the reality of Babylon before the day of the Lord, That, uh, that Babylon at the end of the age, led by the Antichrist, is essentially just a restoration of Babylon in the beginning, whose desire was to establish a tower with its height in the heavens where the Lord sits enthroned over the earth to rule over the earth independently from God in rebellion to his commands, establishing a great name, which is always in reference to a government or nation a great governance over the earth independent of the Lord. And, uh, and so the Lord broke that up as a tarrying mechanism, uh, like all of the other tarrying mechanisms we talked about, to keep humanity humble in repentance and humility to save them from uh, the day of the Lord and the lake of fire. And so the prophetical writings, they are all Isaiah 13, 14, 46, 47, Jeremiah 50, 51, Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk 1, 2, all of those that we work through are clearly based on the historical Babylon, the historical kingdom, that there's a continuity from the plain of Shinar, or the Sumerian Empire, I believe, through to the Babylonian Empire, and, uh, and that that thing, the, the prophets, we're prophesying the same historical Babylon and that Babylon as it's typified under Nebuchadnezzar and is this not Babylon the great that I have built like Habakkuk 2 says the vision of the Babylonians is a revelation concerning the end and so at the end of the age you have Babylon the great uh, in contrast to Babylon the lesser historically and so eschatologically you have a restored Babylonian kingdom with a real city in uh, Babylon and, uh, and the nations of the earth united uh, around that. And so in context to that, uh, this is what the early church was preparing for, for a culmination of wickedness under a man of unrighteousness. And, uh, and we just work through a number of, in the class, a number of the infrastructures for a uh, restored Babylonian uh, order upon the earth uh, as far as your political, economic, and ideological infrastructures. That is clearly where humanity is moving towards to consolidate once again all wealth and power 
under a singular headship and rebellion to God, and uh, which we call the uh, Antichrist or the Anti-Messiah. And so in context to that, last week we worked through the, uh, the uh, ne- really next, next semester's class, the Praxis class, will give context, really full context for the mission of the church uh, in context to the uh, Antichrist empire. This class will just hit three aspects that I feel are... Uh, central to that, one being the calling of sacred assemblies. Oh, did a wee little one. (laughs) Hey, Leonard, can you grab a chair for... Oh, okay. And so, so last week we worked through that the... uh, The churches in the book of Acts, what they were doing was not like uh, the book of Joel or like the book of Zephaniah. The calling of an assembly before the great and terrible day of the Lord. They believed the day of the Lord was at hand, that Jesus would return and destroy the enemies of God, including those who had crucified him. And so they were calling, just like Joel said, just like Zephaniah, just like the implications of the other prophets that speak of the day of the Lord but don't give an immediate response, their assembling was in context to the day of the Lord. It was day of the Lord assembling. And so what they were doing was not that they had in mind when Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel said that God will pour out his spirit before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It wasn't, he, that is exactly what he had in mind, is that it was a day of the Lord assembly, a calling together and repentance, humility before the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord for salvation and mercy, for grace to walk faithfully in righteousness until that day which is reflected in his call for repentance to, uh, to the people of Israel, you who crucified him, repent and be baptized. Um, so, uh, this week, the other central aspect to, uh, to what I believe is, will be a faithful witness and faithfully walking through the Great Tribulation is the wholehearted embrace of martyrdom. The number one, the key to walking faithfully through that is the Hebrews 10, do not forsake assembling all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Do not forsake coming together, praying for each other, seeking the Lord, uh, confessing each other, confessing sins to one another in light of the day of the Lord, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, uh, and that dream, man, that dream is monkeying with my mind. David Walters had a dream uh, yesterday morning in which, uh, in which he at the end he ended up taking the mark of the beast and woke up at 4 a.m. with fear and trembling and and uh, woke Laddish up and they were praying 
And so it really is that reality of the day of the Lord is at hand and it's real, it's not ethereal, it's actually coming to the earth and my life is going to be held accountable to it. And, uh, and so in light of that, the assembly, but then second to that is the embracing of martyrdom because of the centrality of it. So uh, introduction, a little bit of what we've already said, in light of the day of the Lord being near, patient, enduring faith, in God, his Messiah, and the restoration of all things is the foundation of the church's mission in this age. And so that is the context for our assembling together in repentance and belief concerning the day of the Lord and all of the multitude of scriptures that exhorts us to wait eagerly uh, for uh, the return of Jesus. Um Revelation 14, another angel flying midair declaring the eternal gospel, which is the judgment to come. And in context to that, the mark of the beast and the culmination of wickedness that is coming. Therefore, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Not only that, but in context to the day of the Lord, the church is also called to faithfully witness to Jesus and the judgment to come. The witness is essentially amnestic in nature, representing the kindness and long-suffering of the Lord towards the wicked. And so, uh, so like we looked at, like uh, for those of you who haven't been in the theology class, this is extremely redundant for those of you who have, I realize, but... Um, redemptive history is essentially between Genesis 3-6 and Revelation 20. Redemptive history is essentially amnestic in nature. And, uh, and I just use that term, though it's not in the Scriptures, but it's implied throughout the Scriptures concerning the mercy of God, concerning the patience of God towards the wicked, concerning the long-suffering of God, concerning the exhortation that God is not punishing the wicked, but the day of the Lord is coming, concerning the hope of the blessing of the righteous, the resurrection of the righteous, which, is, which has not happened. Therefore, I just use that term to uh, describe generally God's stance towards rebellious, rebellious humanity before the day of the Lord. And so in light of this, the church's mission is to set its hope on the day of the Lord and then be a witness to that Jesus is the one that God has appointed as the arm of the Lord to execute vengeance upon the earth and rule over the earth for him. And so uh, Luke 24, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and your witnesses of these things. And so uh, also represented in Acts 10, which again is the commentary on Acts 1, the only direct commentary, he commanded us to preach and t uh, to the people and testify that he's, he is the one whom God has appointed judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this is because this is the essential mission of God in this age is to forgive sins and save rebellious humanity from a lake of fire. 
then this also you have uh, large A amnestic and therefore small A amnestic of a sojourning witness waiting to inherit the earth prophesying and pointing and uh, witnessing to the day of the Lord. So see, this amnestic witness is most perfectly expressed in martyrdom, which the church must embrace wholeheartedly at the end of the age as wickedness finds its full expression. The scriptures clearly declare that global martyrdom is the glorious destiny of the end-time church. So two points on that. Number one, it's clear that the church is heading towards global martyrdom. And number two, it's a glorious destiny in the eyes of the Lord. And so both of these aspects are generally uh, either ignored, toned down, or implicitly argued against. And so Daniel 7, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So Daniel 7, clearly, the Antichrist is given power by God to conquer the saints and overcome them. And then the saints are given power by God to overcome under the leadership of the son, the one like a son of man to overcome the Antichrist and destroy him and inherit the kingdom promised. Uh, from the foundation of the world. And so the key to that is why is God giving the Antichrist power to conquer the saints? Page 2, Revelation 13, you have a reiteration of Daniel 7 in which the beast that just like Daniel 7 that comes out of the sea just like Daniel 7 has the resemblance of the leopard, the bear, the lion, it's the great and terrible beast, the final empire on the earth. And that empire is given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, tongue, and all the nations of the earth will worship him. And so, uh, again, the... Uh, He's given authority. And so this leads to Revelation 7 in which you, uh, John sees a vision in the heaven of heavens where before God is a great multitude of people from every nation under which that uh, Antichrist and that kingdom is given power over all the nations. And because of that, out of all the nations comes a multitude from every nation of martyrs. As the angel says, as the angel says, who are these? The elder asks him. John says, sir, you know. The elder says, these are they that have come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so, um, so one, the loss of focus and theology concerning martyrdom after the Constantinian shift, because clearly, if you look at church history, martyrdom is holistically embraced until the Constantinian shift. And then martyrdom fades into the background as a, uh, as a strange aspect of the New Testament 
and something that only the super spiritual uh, sometimes accidentally enter into on the mission field. And so uh, the reason why it fades into the background after the Constantinian shift is the introduction of Platonism into the Christian worldview. As such, the essential amnestic witness of the church was lost, and likewise the essential meaning of martyrdom itself was lost. Because this is the point, is that God, the redemptive history is essentially God restraining from vengeance upon his enemies. And so therefore, the church's mission is essentially the same. Forgiving its enemies, preaching to the wicked the kindness and restraint of God and therefore restraining vengeance upon the, their enemies and the enemies of God, even though sometimes, like David, we cry out that God would come and break the teeth of the oppressor, etc. But it's the same tension that God lives in and therefore martyrdom is the, is the, uh, is the height of the witness of restraining from vengeance upon injustice in this age. And so redemptive history essentially provides meaning to martyrdom. The event itself has meaning in the eyes of the people who are committing the injustice. It's, and so uh, point two, within the Platonic worldview, the mission of God and therefore the mission of the church is either dominionistic if you stress uh, sovereignty, or escapist if you express salvation. So those of you in the theology class, this is uh, familiar. But within a Platonic worldview in which you dichotomize based on human perception and you immaterialize that which is invisible to human perception, then in that context, redemptive history is essentially Gnostic. And the end of redemptive history, the end of redemptive history is essentially annihilationist unto an etherealized, it's not the heaven of the Bible, it is an etherealized heaven. It is a Platonic heaven that is not quote, physical, it has no substantiality, no materiality, etc. Unlike the description of the heavens in the scriptures, geographically above the earth. And so the, the salvation and the redemptive end is so radically different within Gnosticism and Platonism, rather than the resurrection of the body and the kingdom of the Messiah, you have an etherealized resurrection, the eternal existence of the soul, and an immaterialized kingdom, which is the immaterial realm. And, uh, and so, in that context, martyrdom has no essential meaning because within this worldview, you either focus on salvation, which is escaping the material realm, which happens either at death or at the day of the Lord, which is why the day of the Lord and death are practically equated within the Western mind, or you focus on God's sovereignty, 
which is uh, complicated because immateriality has difficulty having sovereignty over materiality. And so you either focus on salvation, which is escapism, or you focus on God's sovereignty, in which you get dominionism. And people kind of flow back and forth between those two based on, you know, which scriptures, because clearly God, the scriptures declare God has absolute sovereignty over all creation. And, uh, and so if you focus on the sovereignty scriptures, then you end up with a dominionistic approach that God is establishing uh, his kingdom over the earth and establishing sovereignty over the earth, or if you focus on salvation, you focus on the escape and the saving souls to get out of the uh, fire, so to say. So in this context, martyrdom within this worldview has no meaning in the event itself. Martyrdom within an escapist context is essentially a waste because... All that's happened is that you've lost another person within the kingdom now, the manifestation of the etherealized kingdom. You've lost another person laboring the ark of salvation within which people are saved and uh, go to heaven. And so within this context, martyrdom's essentially a waste within a dominionistic context. Martyrdom is actually a failure because the powers of this world have actually overcome the powers of the church, which is the kingdom expressing God's sovereignty, the manifestation of God's sovereignty over uh, the earth. Uh, And so in that context, martyrdom, again, doesn't mean anything. And within dominionistic contexts, Sometimes within escapist context, you'll actually get conversation about martyrdom. Though there's not, a, there's not a real baseline of theology backing it and pressing for it, there's at least a glorification of it and an honoring of it, especially in the mission field. Within a dominionistic context, it's n- I've never heard it talked about, and it's Im- because it's implicitly argued against inherently in the theology, argues against martyrdom in the situation. So, point three, within a biblical worldview, the mission of God and therefore of the church is amnestic, which, in, which supplies inherent meaning to the event of martyrdom if the intentions are actually motivated by the same intentions as God, out of love for the wicked, out of salvation, etc. So, second, 1 Peter 2 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Therefore, in context to the day of judgment, in context to the injustice of the Gentiles, don't be like the Gentiles who lorded over those they rule over. In context to that, for the Lord's sake, 
accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme, the governor as sent by God to punish those, etc., that God has the same witness, like Peter says uh, about Jesus, that he gave, no, 1 Timothy 6, that Jesus gave, is that right? That Jesus gave the, the good witness to Pontius Pilate. That he gave the good witness to, to Pilate that he has no authority except what is given to him from above. That every institution among man has been established by the Lord, whether they recognize it or not in this age. And in that context, except every institution as established by God, implicitly even the emperor himself, which they all saw as leading toward... I mean, it's been building from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. I mean, it is, bab- it is building progressively to one empire after another, larger and larger and larger, ultimately unto the empire that rules over all the nations of the earth. And therefore, the implicit command here is accept even that empire as established by the Lord. For the sake of that they see your righteousness and your deeds, your long-suffering as a witness to God, and therefore they glorify God, they bow the knee, whether they acknowledge the truth when Jesus returns and judges, whether they accept it, by our witness, or they don't accept it by our witness in this age, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, for it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference or respect, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if being aware of God being aware of God's kindness and restraint towards that harsh master, because in a minute, his breath ends in the middle of the night. I mean, in a minute, he comes down with a sickness, he's dead in two days. In a minute, some accident, he's gored by an animal, it's done. I mean, his life is so like grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. Therefore, being cognizant of God recognizing how God is towards him. Therefore, you submit to him also. Being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you're beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. And so the in his steps bit is talking about submitting to injustice in this age and kindness and love and, and functioning in restraint of vengeance with a witness concerning the day of the Lord and concerning the kindness and love of our God towards the wicked. That's the point of of uh, him saying that God has left us an example of suffering at the hands of the unjust. And then 1 Corinthians 13, but the, the implicit point of that is that you have to actually be motivated by the same love that God has towards the slave owner. 
And so uh, if I speak in uh, tongues of men, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, which is a reference to martyrdom, but, I, but have not love, then I gain nothing in the resurrection. So page three, the faithful witness. The faithful witness to the judgment of the day of the Lord and God's long-suffering kindness and restraining from judgment is typified in the martyrdom of his own son for the forgiveness of the sins of his enemies. And so uh, Luke 23, they crucified him. And in context to his crucifixion, the driving desire of his heart comes forth at the end, which is, Father, forgive them. And then you get a, I just put a couple of commentary on that, John 3, for God so loved the world, referencing the wicked, that he gave his one and only Son as an atonement that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life in the resurrection. Romans 5 for while we were still helpless at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. He was martyred for the ungodly. It didn't just happen out of context. He set an example in suffering and martyrdom for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this restraint from judgment in light of the greatest injustice in history, the crucifixion of God himself, is the central aspect of the early apostolic witness to those who had martyred Jesus. So in Acts 2, this is why the 3,000 people got baptized that day. Because it's the same people at the, at the uh, Feast of Weeks that were there for the Feast of, of Passover who all gathered together telling uh, Pilate to crucify and, tell, and backing the Sanhedrin to crucify Jesus. And so therefore they're there 10 days later and, uh, and they're part of the feast. And so Peter gets up and says, listen, you crucified the Messiah. That God accredited to you as the Messiah with signs and wonders and he vindicated him from raising him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father. In Psalm 110, he's waiting to make his enemies, i.e. you, who crucified him, his footstool. Therefore, be sure of this. God has made this man Lord from Psalm 110 and, and quoting Joel 2.32 before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he's made this Jesus Lord and Christ. He's made him the Messiah. And so therefore, this is why the cutting to the heart that they crucified the Messiah and the Messiah is waiting at the right hand of God to descend from heaven and destroy them and crush them. And that he's given the Holy Spirit as a sign and a witness prophesying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the day of the Lord and the resurrection. So Acts 3, likewise, the raising of the man who was paralytic, he gathers them together and he says, why are you looking at us as though we, by our own power or godliness, raised this man up? But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Jacob, of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. 
And so it's not like theoretical. He's talking to a crowd saying, you remember when you stood before Pilate in a mob and said, crucify him. This is the guy who must wait for a time in heaven before the restoration of all things. And he's come to you first to turn you from your wickedness by, uh, by blessing you, by turning you from your wickedness uh, before the second time. You killed the author of life. You acted in ignorance. Uh, repent, therefore, and turn that your sins might be blotted out, like Acts 2. Repent uh, that uh, for the forgiveness of, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Then Acts 4, rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And if you want to be saved from the wrath of the day of the Lord, there's no other way by, but submitting to Him. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved from the wrath of the day of the Lord. So in this context, you get a feel of the severity of the day of the Lord. You crucified Him. But the tenderness and the long-suffering mercy of our God that turned from your wickedness because God is restraining from destroying you and has provided in you martyring and you crucifying him the means by which you will be saved from the day of the Lord. Point two, this restraint from vengeance is exemplified in the first apostolic martyrdom in the book of Acts. Thus, Stephen's final declaration, like Jesus, reveals the ultimate drive of his heart. The same way when we, uh, when you hear stories about people like when planes crash and right before people die, they express the deepest drive and desire of their heart, either cursing God or crying out to God or whatever. And so, uh, Stephen's martyrdom expresses the drive of his heart where he says, you're just like your forefathers, rebelling against the Holy Spirit, just like your forefathers who killed the prophets. You betrayed and murdered the Messiah. They all cover their ears, rushing at him. They stone him. They drag him out and stone him. And Stephen looks up and sees at the right hand of God, the Son of Man. And the point of that is that he sees the day of the Lord at hand. That is the point of that, that he sees God absolutely sovereign, the Messiah at the right hand of God, and therefore the day of the Lord is about to happen and he is going to descend from that right hand and crush his enemies. And therefore his response is, oh God, don't hold this against them when he descends. So three, those saints and prophets who were shamefully treated throughout the scriptures are honored as those with the greatest faith in the age to come and thus exemplifying the heart of the Lord in this age. And so the context of Hebrews 11, which really is a context of sojourning and suffering. The whole chapter is about sojourning and suffering from Abel all the way through to uh, the prophets. But the 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 context for the sojourning and suffering throughout redemptive history is given in chapter 10 in which he says, uh, 
do not forsake assembling together, all the more as you see the day of the Lord, the day approaching, do not continue sinning in context of the day of the Lord, because at the rejection of the law of Moses, people got cut off. How much more at the rejection of the greater prophet, the Messiah himself, will you enter everlasting fire on the day of the Lord? Remember, so I'm just giving before the... Before verse 32, remember those early days after you had received the light, the light concerning the day of the Lord. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted. So, <laughs> you remember last week? The rejoicing and joy is in context to the re- resurrection. You, re- you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions in the resurrection. You rejoiced in the resurrection and therefore you endured the suffering and persecution. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded in the resurrection. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God as a witness to the day of the Lord, and you've sojourned faithfully, you will receive what has been promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, referencing right before that, the fearful expectation of everlasting judgment. We're not those who shrink back. But we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the day of the Lord, and therefore we acknowledge Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead, and we are going to be saved by faith in him. And so he says, now faith, concerning the day of the Lord, is being sure of what we hope, his coming and our better and lasting possessions in the resurrection. It's being sure of what we hope, certain of what we do not see, temporally, not metaphysically. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then he goes through all the ancients and them being commended for their faith in the day of the Lord and the resurrection. Verse 35, others were tortured. They refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection, i.e. their glory would differ from one degree to another, 1 Corinthians 15. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins clothing, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. It's a glorious destiny. The world was not worthy of them. They were walking worthy of their calling. They wandered in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they they be made perfect, made perfect in context to the resurrection. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who will perfect our faith, i.e. raise us from the dead. Our faith is in the resurrection. He's the one who will perfect us. He's the author of life, the author of the resurrection. He's been given the spirit, etc. Let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, his own resurrection, he endured the, the scorn, scorn and shame of the cross. And so likewise, he set an example for us to run the race marked out for us like Jesus did even unto martyrdom, if that is what God would choose for us in our life. But for the righteous, we will all endure persecution. That's, that's uh, guaranteed if we love the Lord he sat down at the right hand of God on the uh, of the throne of God, page five. Consider him, consider him, i.e., emulate your life like this, who endured such opposition from sinful men out of love for them, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart, because this is the context of the great falling away is the growing weary and losing heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, like Jesus did in martyrdom. It's a, it's a martyrdom reference. Obviously, if they're reading Paul's letter, they haven't been martyred yet. And so that's his point, is that you resist and you remain faithful even to the point of uh, martyrdom, if that's how God would lead you. Point four, Paul thus considers it an honor, an honor to face martyrdom since his life goal was to witness to the long-suffering of God in the cross. Acts 20, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, to testifying to the kindness of God in his suffering before his glory and his providing for humanity a, an escape from the wrath that they deserve. Now I know that none of you that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And so this is why preaching the kingdom, it's so important that the kingdom is the messianic kingdom ushered in by the day of the Lord. Because if it's anything else, then it completely skews the entire way you see redemptive history. And therefore, you live out your life in a small d dominionism because God's living out his in a big d dominionism. Or you live out your life so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good in a small e escapism rather than a large e escapism rather than as a witness to the day of the Lord preaching the kingdom you'll never see me therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God point five Jesus himself exemplifies the witness of Antipas and his martyrdom as service unto the praise of God the father's long suffering and so Jesus in his restraint and in his own should not the author and perfecter of our faith oh I just blanked on Hebrews 2 be made perfect through his sufferings should not he be raised 
from the dead by means of his suffering, therefore likewise we will be raised from the dead and attain to the resurrection through our suffering. And so Revelation 1 Grace and peace to him who is and was and was to come, referencing the Father and from the, the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and freed us from the sins by his blood, who's made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father forever. So likewise, Jesus represented God the Father in his own martyrdom and the cross, he represented and glorified God the Father in his governance over history, how God makes is kind to the wicked and the righteous alike, making rain pour on the wicked and righteous alike, etc. Therefore, be perfect like your heavenly Father. And so he glorified the Father, likewise Antipas, is a faithful witness, not renouncing his faith in Jesus to the honor and glory of, of, uh, of his Father. And likewise, the two witnesses at the bottom of the page uh, embody their own testimony in their own martyrdom. Their testimony that to all the inhabitants of the earth and the kings of the earth, that the day is coming, Jesus is ruler of the earth. The only authority you have is given by him right now. You need to repent because he's going to return and crush you and then there's temporal judgments to back up the witness. Page 6, as the definitive prophetical witness of the end of the age, Matthew 24 clearly spells out the purpose of the church in the face of the culmination of human rebellion. And so Matthew 24, as humanity in union under the Antichrist and the abomination that causes desolation, there's the birth pangs that lead up to the abomination that causes desolation. And then at that time, the church will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and hated by all, by all nations. Who is the church handed over by? No, this is really important. Who is the church handed over by? It's so important to see this, that, he's, that God is the one handing over the church in kindness as a testimony to humanity, the same way He gave over His only begotten Son as a testimony uh, to humanity. In light of the universal martyrdom of the church, the church is called to remain faithful in prayer, faith, proclamation, patiently enduring to the end of the age. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, betray each other. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm, patiently enduring with a faithful witness to the injustice and the wickedness that is happening on the earth, standing firm to the end, whether martyrdom or not, will be saved in the resurrection. As the church remains faithful in her faith, she is called likewise to remain faithful in her testimony of the coming wrath and God's present kindness and patience. This will result in a climactic global witness to all the nations typified by a global martyrdom which will be God's final testimony to all the nations before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's clear, just for those of you who aren't 
familiar because Matthew 24, 14 is used within this context uh, as something of a timing ind- indicator before the coming of the day of the Lord. And it is a timing indicator. There'll be three and a half years right here. And, uh, and the gospel will be preached to all the nations that are under, that have been given to the Antichrist. And at the end of that testimony to all the nations typified in martyrdom, the end will come. But it's definitely not an indicator just because right before that, uh, Matthew 24, then you will be handed over at the abomination that causes desolation and you will be hated by all the nations. So all the nations already have a, uh, have a witness to Jesus uh, before the Antichrist uh, is revealed. So um, Mark 13, this makes it even more clear. You'll be handed over to local councils Flogged in the synagogues on account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Culminating at the end of the age, the witness to all the nations is specifically, you'll stand before the synagogues in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to all the kings. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And Luke 3 the gospel of the kingdom being preached to all the nations is the, the picture of the preaching of the church during the great tribulation really is John the Baptist. Luke 3, so he began saying to the crowds who were coming out to him to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the, from the wrath to come. This will be the testimony of the church in the age to come, who warned you in kindness, because warning people is kindness towards them and love towards them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork, referring to the one to whom he is not the Christ, but one will come after him, who he's not worthy to etc. His winnowing forks in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather his wheat, the righteous, into his barn, the kingdom, but he will burn up the chaff, the wicked, with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. And so the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 24, 14 is the same gospel throughout redemptive history. The day of the Lord is at hand. It's near. The wrath of God is at hand, but he's kind toward you and he's restraining, therefore repent, for it's at hand. See, this is where it gets nuts. It will be the filling up of the flesh of the church, what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, that will, find, that will finalize the testimony of God to rebellious humanity, ushering in the day of the Lord. And so if any of you have ever heard uh, John Piper speak on Colossians 1.24, this is the point of the passage. You also who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death at the cross in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. That's in context to being presented on the day of the Lord before him. So 
he, you're reconciled to him by the cross, by his suffering and martyrdom. You're reconciled that you might be presented to him in perfection in the resurrection. If indeed, if indeed you sojourn faithfully, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice, I rejoice in my sufferings. (laughs) I rejoice in my sufferings. (laughs) I rejoice in my sufferings. I really am a happy man. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For your sake. I rejoice the same way Jesus says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That you might be made one in the resurrection. We'll shout out to Tim Miller. Okay, so uh, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I.e., I am filling up in my afflictions, in my suffering, as a witness that the church might get as many people into it as possible. Because God is patient, wanting everyone to be saved, brought into the church, and for the sake of the church, Jesus suffered and died to be saved from the wrath. Therefore, we likewise, we fill up in our flesh, obviously, not that we provide any means of atonement. That's not his point. His point is, is that we emulate the suffering of Christ. We emulate the restraint from injustice and wicked, not only in word, which really needs to happen, really needs to happen, but also in deed, which will happen if we declare to the wicked of the earth, the day of the Lord is coming. It's not just an etherealized day of the Lord that happens after you die. It's a real day of the Lord that is coming upon this earth. And all the unrighteousness of the economics, all the unrighteousness of multinational corporations in lieu and, and, and collusion with all the wicked kings of the earth, these are the things that are causing the wrath of God to come upon the earth. These are the things. And the declaration that these are the things, Ephesians 5, that's causing the wrath of God to come upon the earth is what will cause persecution to come upon the church. That's why the church is not persecuted in our day. It's because it has no message with bite concerning the judgment of God coming upon wickedness, wicked human institutions and actions. Um. 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the, the death of Jesus. We fill up in our body the afflictions of Christ. We carry it around, emulating Jesus' suffering, so that the life of Jesus, his resurrection as a firstfruits, him giving us that spirit as a deposit, he will pour out that spirit that has been given to him by the Father on us in the resurrection, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body in the resurrection. 
For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Given over by who? By the Father. For For Jesus' sake, as a witness to Jesus, and the cross inherently witnessing to the glory that's going to follow and the the wrath that has been uh, appointed to him, the judgment that's been appointed to him. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Referencing again the resurrection, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence at the day of the Lord. All this is for your benefit. I fill up in my body the afflictions of Christ for the benefit of the church, for the salvation of sinners and and the wicked to be brought in to the assembly of the righteous. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Which is uh, not only our thanksgiving now in the deposit of the Spirit, but like we saw last week, the thanksgiving and rejoicing at the day of the Lord to the glory of God at the day of the Lord that will fill the earth, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away in the context is we're wasting away in the suffering and persecution, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day in our hope of the day of the Lord, our hope of the resurrection. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all in the resurrection. So, point one, the church is called to embrace suffering and martyrdom wholeheartedly as an expression of service to the great martyr Jesus who died for the salvation of sinners. And so Second uh, Timothy 2, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation, the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory in the resurrection. I endure everything. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him in this age, if we suffer with him, we will also live with him in the resurrection. If we endure We will also reign with him in the age to come. If we disown him in this age, Matthew 10, he will also disown us in the judgment. If we are faithless in this age, he will remain faithful as a righteous judge in the age to come, for he can't disown himself. Romans 8, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is patiently enduring what the Father leads us through in being a witness and suffering trials and persecutions, etc. Then, whether I come and see you, or whether hear about you in my absence, I will know, page 8, that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Let us contend earnestly. Jude, whatever that is, 3 or 4, verse 3 or 4, for the faith for the gospel that has been entrusted to the saints once and for all. 
let us contend as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And it's a sign to those who oppose you that they will be destroyed. It's a sign by your word and your restraint of vengeance toward them that this is how God is towards them. And your word will be vindicated on that day. Philippians 3, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection that he has attained to. Let's go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll uh, we'll come back in 15 minutes, and then uh, we'll finish up.